I would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 19th Psalm. Psalm 19, we come this morning to the final study in this particular psalm. We've noticed this psalm's importance and that it is a central psalm to a whole cluster of psalms that in large measure speaks of God's presence and it has its own place in the ordering of the psalms that sheds at least what I consider light upon it as being central, central to the whole matter of divine presence. Because in a real sense, our awareness of divine presence is a matter of revelation, is that God reveals himself. You know, God could have created a world and put everything into being and yet just absconded, just left it to itself. And and so that's what the group of people called the deists once believed. He sort of, sort of wound it up and set it to going and then said, bye, I'm gone. And uh, God could have left himself without any witness at all of his being, of his glory, of his power, that he's the, the maker of the world. But no, he, he is present in every space of the universe. His heavens declare his glory. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. He's present in every day's life as the sun makes its way through the sky, rising in the east and setting in the west from sunrise to sunset. The Lord's name is to be praised. These are markers of God's purpose and presence in the created world that we should not be a people who just forsake him or just a practical atheist but realizing that all space and all time is sacred and all space and all time is to be used to show forth his glory. And then we see his words. Not only in his world does God give this great display of himself, but also in his, in his word, in his inscripturated revelation that he gives, the instruction we call Torah, or the Hebrews, actually the Hebrews called it Torah, we call it instruction. It is the instruction of his law or the instruction of his word, which is testimony, and precepts, and commandments, and fear, and um, rules. And the reason why I think it's called fear is that we should respond to the word of God as those who are summoned by that word into his presence, and recognizing the reality of his presence, that it's through the words uh, that he gives, God draws near. God mediates his own presence through his word. And that brings us to see the value of this word. The value of this written revelation. That is more to be desired than anything we could ever gain upon this earth. The most precious metals and precious commodities. Not worthy to be compared with this word that God gives. This instruction that leads to life. That leads back to himself. That leads to the blessings of his salvation. This is a word that's sweet to our taste, sweeter than the honeycomb, and the sweetest of honeys that you could ever imagine existing. And then by these, these words were warned of the dangers. We need those warnings. Everybody, everybody in this room has gotten into trouble in life. You know what you've done? You've just passed the warning signs. Now, none of us can say that God's word didn't warn us of the outcome of our sins. It has warned us that we will reap what we sow. And we go about the business of sowing to the flesh. Don't be surprised when you reap corruption. 
Don't be surprised when the end of the whole thing is death. God's word has come and it's warned you of these problems. And there's no trouble we've ever gotten into, but we haven't passed the warning signs of the holy word of God. And then the word also rewards, rewards us with the reality of communion with God, the reality of a good conscience before God, the reward of a good name, the reward of a good testimony before those who are without. So many things come as a result of God's word that's good. That is, to have that word be prized and cherished and loved in our hearts as God's people. But there's a third part of this psalm. I think I mentioned earlier that uh, this is a psalm that is comprised of three psalm types, or what's called genres. Now, I want to say something about this matter of genre. If you ever read a book on the psalms, you're liable to see, if it's a modern book anyway, that the writer is going to talk to you about uh, types of psalms or genres of psalms. Um, and it's a subject that in some studies of the Psalms, people have come, become obsessed with. Um, and I re- really think that though it has its place of understanding, uh, yet the fact is, the writers of the Bible, the writers of the Psalms, were not in the least concerned with producing works of literary genre. They were not concerned about anything but pouring out their hearts to God. They're composing songs that express the depth of their hearts. I don't know how many songwriters today are overly conscious with the types of songs that they uh, compose, whether they're blues or whether they're uh, pop or upbeat or rap or whatever it is that's the type of music that's fashionable today. Um, I think many of them also write out of just the the experience of their lives and the need of their hearts and they don't get into the technicalities of how these things are put together but today scholars do take note of distinctions they take note of different types of songs and different types of psalms and when that concern is kept in a moderate way it can be helpful categories for studying the word of God because there are psalms that can be rightly called creation psalms Psalm 8 is one of them Psalm 104 Classic examples of creation psalms or creation and providence psalms. Um, And Psalm 19 does run along the lines of a creation psalm. It celebrates God's revelation of himself in the heavens, in the skies, in in the course of the sun through the skies. And um, as a creation psalm, it should be interpreted like many of these other creation psalms. I think to me that's the key is when you draw Psalm 19 together with Psalm 8 and 104, then you can see how it fits in. It's not just that uh, this is something that's given to us to contemplate what men in places where the Bible's never been preached can or may know about God. I don't think that's the point. This is the song of the covenant people who consider God's creation. It's to us. We sing, the heavens declare the glory of God. We behold the majesty of the God we worship and serve in the heavens. It's not just telling us what the unbelievers know because of, quote, general revelation, unquote. It's what we, as the covenant people, know and rejoice in and sing about as we see the majesty of our God and our King in all of the works of his hands. But then the second part is what's often referred to as a Torah psalm. 
It's kind of like Psalm 119. We have all those words that tell us what God's written revelation is. Here too, it's commandment, it's statute, it's Torah, it's instruction, it's fear, it's rules. And we're told about its importance, as we've seen. And this too is vital to our understanding of how blessing comes to God's people. We're a people of the book. We're people that acknowledge that we serve and worship not only a God who's displayed his majesty in the world, but we're a people that are subject to his words. That we need to hear his words and receive his words and cherish his words and store up his words in our hearts that we would not sin against him. <coughs> but you know, there's more to the story. There's more to the story. Because you see, it's when we encounter this God when we encounter him in the majesty of his creative activity, when we see him or hear of him in his word, and he is brought near through his word, it impacts us in a very personal manner, in a way in which we see our own failures, in the way in which we see our own needs. And so another kind of psalm or type is brought into play, and that's a lament, a complaint, where the psalmist lays bare the state of his own heart, his own proneness to error, his own need for God's grace to be kept from sin, and to be given grace to bring his life, his life in in its totality, yet represented by the words of his mouth and the meditations of his heart, to be pleasing and acceptable in the sight of the God who is his rock and who is his redeemer. Psalms containing such cries as we read in verse 12 to 14 are called lament psalms. Personal lament of the state of his life, the needs of his own person before the face of the living and the true God. I want to read the words and then we'll say something about them. For the first part of this lament is a question, and then that question is followed by three prayers, three pleas in the presence of God. The question is simply, who can discern his errors? And then the pleas are, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A question. Who can discern his errors? Literally, he's saying, who can grasp The sins he knows nothing about. Now, I'm sure I stress a people this morning who are well aware of the sins they know about. The sins that plague you day by day. The sins that you struggle with. The things we call our besetting sins. We all know about them. We live too closely to them and we obsess over them and we are troubled by them. And yet, this man is not so much concerned about what he knows about. He's concerned about all the things he has no clue about. And yet are real. And they are true. 
Because you see, in this psalm, he's encountered the God of creation. In this psalm, he's encountered the one who is perfect and pure and holy and true. And his word is a vast word that addresses so many more concerns than the things we tend to get bothered with. Again, we get caught up with our own things that trouble us. And yet there's a whole world of issues that are troubling to God and maybe you don't even know about it. You ever think of that? I think so often we have very uh, very little victory over our upset, our besetting sins because we're just so obsessed with them. They're just in our minds continually. And it tends to be with things that are in your mind just affect you in bad ways. And this is a psalm that says there's other things you, you ought to get concerned about that are equally troubling in God's presence. And maybe once you get awake to those realities, you'll have a greater degree of success in addressing the other issues. You certainly won't be obsessed with them. You know, if I had an honest dealings with my own life and it came to the conclusion that, well, Pastor Gordon, your problem is, is that you're just not a very kind person. You just don't consider other people. And, you know, you may tell me that, and it's not my sense of myself. It's not how I view myself. I don't view myself as unkind. But maybe you do. And you came and you told me, you know, there's a whole world of biblical issues. It seems to me, Pastor Gordon, you've never even thought about that stuff. You never even considered it. And maybe you should. And I began to get concerned about that and say, hey, maybe you're right. Maybe I need to take a more honest evaluation of my own life, of my own words, of my own attitudes, and address those things that maybe I've never, ever addressed before in my life because I've been all concerned about the stuff I know about and the stuff that troubles me. In other words, confronting God is to begin to get concerned about the things God's concerned about and not just to be concerned about what you're concerned about. Not just the stuff that you bring to the matter. I'm troubled about this because I feel ashamed about this. I'm troubled about this because it is a bad thing with respect to my marriage. My maid is always getting on my, my case about this. So I'm concerned about those things that trouble me, that bother me. And yet there's maybe a whole host of areas where you just haven't even thought about it. You ever think that there are more errors, more failures more concerns that you don't know about than you do? It seems to me the psalmist tells us something about that in Psalm 40. Look at Psalm 40. He says in chapter 40 and verse 12, and this is after he's gotten out of the miry bog, this is after God set his feet upon a solid rock, this is as he comes to know God a little bit better, he comes to the conclusion, for evils have encompassed me beyond number. Beyond number. And my iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see, for they're more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. They're more than the hairs of my head. Well, I, mean, I don't have that many as I used to have, but I still can't number all the hairs of my head. And although it's getting a little bit more manageable to move into an exercise like that. I tell you, you're not going to count all the hairs on Mike's head. It's just a very thick head of hair. And that's what he's really saying. Is you, this, you, and, and sin is like that. There's patches of it. There's an abundance of it that you might not have even known about. 
Now all the hairs on the back of your head especially, you don't even see. There are many things in your life you don't even see. And yet God sees, and you need to be concerned about that. And so in a very general way, he comes and he prays about the errors he just simply knows nothing about. Things he's committed without even being consciously aware. This is transgression. This is attitudes. This is actions. These are thoughts. These are words that ought to humble you. And your problem is you simply are too ignorant to know about it. And you get awake to this. Ignorance is no excuse. The army, they'd say it's an explanation, but it's still not an excuse. Again, in Psalm 40, the, the, the stuff he's aware about is overwhelming, and the stuff that he's unaware of are even greater still. If sin is so exceedingly common, if it comes in so many forms and comes in so many varieties, the question may well be raised, who's even aware of it and how can such sins be dealt with? You see, in Israel, you, you could bring a sin offering to the tabernacle. You could confess your sins over it and find hope of pardon. But who can, confess, who can cleanse you from the sins you're not even aware of to confess? And the answer simply is, it's the mercies of God alone that can avail to cleanse us from all sin. He says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. Or you can declare me innocent from things I don't even know about. Again, I was saved as a 17-year-old, and I thought the big thing I had to deal with was smoking cigarettes, which I'd only smoked for about a year, but still... I very much enjoyed it and was very much addicted to them. And to me, that was, if I could lick that, man, I could conquer worlds. And again, I had no clue as to the reality of the sin of the soul, the sin of the heart, the sin that's hidden from my eyes and yet apparent in the eyes of God. And yet I can find in God one who is able to cleanse us from all our sin, sin of every kind, the hidden sins the besetting sins, the youthful sins, the presumptuous sins, the sins of youth, the sins of old age, the sins against light and knowledge, the sins of ingratitude, the sins of oppression, the sins of pride, the sins of lust, the sins of self-centeredness. All of them are grievous. All of them are exceedingly sinful. All of them are worthy of death. But blessed be God, all of them, can be cleansed in the fountain laid open for sin and uncleanness. Jesus has shed his blood that all of our sins would be pardoned, that we would be purged completely from all of our guilt, from all of our defilement. There is a fountain filled with blood poured from Emmanuel's veins where sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. And so the psalmist comes to this Lord he encounters in the world and in his word. And he 
and he knows him to be a God of mercy. He knows him to be a God of pardon. And he comes to him with his first plea. Lord, all my unknown sins, all my hidden sins, all my hidden faults, cleanse me from them, clear me of them, take away their power to defile and to condemn. Great prayer. Great prayer. One that we should be regularly praying. But how many of us think of it? That's why we need God's word ever to bring us back to the reality. There's so many sins we just simply don't even know about. And yet we should take awareness of and we should ask God to give us light and understanding that we might address those matters as well as the stuff that we are just overly burdened with. Well, having sought the Lord in the first place for pardon, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults? There's still the problem of the future. If only past pardon could keep us from future sin. But it can't and it won't. In a world of sin and temptation, there's no exemption from the sins of the next hour. The sins of tomorrow. All we can do is continue to pray what Jesus told us to do. Well, actually, do what he told us to do when he said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. We need to live before the presence of God with our hearts dependent upon him to keep us from sin. The prayer of verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Lord, I'd run headlong into those sins. Restrain me. Hold me back. Keep me back. Let them not have dominion over me. He says, don't let them get the better of me. I'm in a struggle. I'm in a conflict. I'm in a war. And if I don't master sin, sin will master me. Who's going to win? Remember how God said to Cain, sin is at the door. It's looking to master you. You're to master it. And God is able to give us the grace to overcome. Either we're going to overcome by faith, or sin's going to overcome us in our unbelief. That's really the test of the Christian life. interesting he says keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins he wants to be God's servant and to serve God we need to be obedient servants are loyal servants are faithful servants endeavor to do the will of its master God needs to master every one of us that we can be faithful servants to himself His word needs to bring us under its discipline. That's why scripture is so important again to this whole matter of living the Christian life. This is given not only for teaching, but for correction. It shows us all the areas that we've been wrong. You know, whenever you've taken a test in school, 
and you put out down your answers, and then, at least my school, you're always told, well, give it to the one in front of you, and you exchange the papers, and then they put the right answers on the board, and then you get it back and you see all those X's where you got them, all these, these, these things wrong. But next to the X's, there should be something that will tell you what the right answer is. So that you have not only the wrong answer, X'd out, you're corrected. You're corrected. Here's all the wrong things. This is the wrong answer. Here's the right answer. That's what Scripture does. It corrects us. It shows us our sins and then it says, here's how you do it the right way. It instructs us in the right way that we might be faithful servants, willingly obedient to the God who is our master, and that we would not be engaging in presumptuous sins. We would not be unfaithful servants. We would have God's word ever instructing us, having his word deeply embedded within our hearts that we would not sin against him and so the passions are addressed with the first plea declare me innocent from hidden faults the present matters of sin keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin let them not rule let them have not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions But the final plea is a plea for piety. Not only a plea that addresses purity and protection, but also piety. You know what piety is? It's a big fancy word for devotion. It's the heart's devotion given to God. Again, we are his servants and we are not our own. We are bought with a price. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to the God who has saved us through the blood of Christ. This is our confidence. This is our hope. There's a catechism that asks the first question, what is your confidence in life and in death? And its answer is, my confidence in life and in death is that I do not belong to myself, but I belong to Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior. Devotion to Christ is what is the essence of true piety. And the piety of the people of God in terms of our devotion to our Lord is really to be measured in two things. The state of the heart and the state of the mouth. Paul derives from Deuteronomy chapter 33, I believe it is, the fact that God's word is near to us in our mouths and in our hearts. And as Paul understands God's word coming to us, as a matter for mouth and heart of confession and belief. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. The heart and the mouth both enter in to, save, to biblical salvation. It's a matter of the heart, of the renovation of the heart of the realization that our hearts are, again, not our own. We just don't have the inner life that's detached from God or devoid of God. We don't say, Lord, I want you in my life, but out in the outer outer room, stay on the porch. (laughs) The heart is made open and transparent before him with whom we have to do. 
And we hear his words as it addresses the totality of our beings. So that the meditation of our heart is reflective of his words. That the words of our mouths are reflective of the words of his mouth. The God who has spoken has spoken in words that we are to reciprocate in the words that we ourselves speak. Now again, the language I said before is the language of, of sacrifice. It's the language of what we bring to God in terms of something that costs us something. Remember how David said, how shall I give to the Lord that which costs me nothing? If it's not something that's costly, it's not really a sacrifice. The, the, the wealthy people that gave of their abundance, Jesus says, is nothing compared to the widow who gave of her two mites. She gave all that she had. It has to cost you something. And we want our words to be measured by his sight. What's acceptable before him. What we can bring in priestly offering to him. And say, Lord, is this acceptable? Lord, does this measure up? It's a question of living before the face of God. In fact, the words in your sight actually do mean before his face. It means before his face. Remember how God said to Abraham, walk before me and be perfect? It's walk before my face, knowing that God sees you. Knowing that God knows, not only hearing your words, but knowing the thoughts of the heart. We want our words to have his approval. We want his words, again, to be reflective of his own words. The sacrifices of God, we're told, are a broken heart. And a contrite spirit. The heart needs to be humbled before the Lord. The Lord says to this man will I look. To him who is a poor contrite heart. And who trembles at my word. The broken heart is the believing heart. It's the heart that has come to the end of its own resources. And it recognizes its need for the Lord to, to govern us. The Lord to guide us. And hence the thoughts of the heart become Thoughts of truth becomes thoughts of praise and thoughts of delight and thoughts of how we might best honor and serve the God who has so richly blessed us. We're prepared to be taught. We're prepared to be instructed. Calvin didn't often speak of his conversion, but in his preface to the Psalms, he did reference it in a very interesting way. He said, when I became teachable. When I became teachable. What was his mark? How did he mark his conversion to God? He said, I became teachable. Before I was converted to Christ, I wasn't teachable. Nobody could tell me anything. Nobody could teach me anything. I lived by my own wits. I lived by my own light. And then God came. And when God came, I became teachable. He brought me to the end of myself. And so we want to be taught. We want our hearts and our words to be reflective of God's truth and God's goodness and God's love and God's glory and everything that's redolent of the fragrance and the presence of the God of heaven and earth.
And he concludes by ascribing to God the reality of his identity as the God of the covenant. He's Yahweh. And he's the God who is his rock and the God who is his redeemer. He's the strength of the psalmist. A rock. The place of safety. You all see in the westerns when the guy's out doing the gun fight with the guy in the black hat. Behind the white hat, what does he do? Runs behind the rocks. He's not going to get shot. The rocks are going to take the bullets and he's going to be protected. We find our protection in our God. We find our strength in our God. We find our stability in our God. And then the word he uses for redeemer is the word ga'ol, which simply means the person most influential in your family that helps you out when you're in trouble. In other words, he's the God who cares for us and the God who provides what we need. That's who the Lord is. He is our rock and our helper. Provides us what we need. Only conclusion. Let me just say three things and then I'm done. These prayers that he prays, this prayer for purity, this prayer for protection, this prayer for piety, it all arises out of his contemplation of God. God's revelation in creation. God's perfections made known in his words. It's this revelation God gives of himself that confronts us with him, that humbles us, that convicts us, that creates faith in us, that brings us to look to him as the source of all our good. Sometimes think Christians think, if only I could load my conscience with enough guilt, if only I could bring to bear upon my own mind just what a wretched worm I am, what a hell-deserving sinner I am, I just load on all those realities, and I deny none of that here, all that's true of us, but the reality is something more is true of us. We're saved. We're saved. We're actually redeemed. We're actually rescued by this God who has regarded us and has loved us and has called us to himself. And the reality is we see our sins more piercingly. We see our sins more distressingly. We see our sins in ways that humble us more than any guilt can bring when we see him what a contrast between what we are and who God is woe is me I'm undone Isaiah says I'm a man of unclean lips I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips how'd you get there Isaiah my eyes have seen the king Yahweh of hosts I see something of his glory I don't know how impure I am. I know how much I need to pray for purity, that God would cleanse me, that God would convict, not convict me, there I'm convicted by the reality I'm in his presence. Depart from me, Peter said to Jesus. I'm a sinful man. He sees himself in his presence, the realization that he needs, if he'd ever, he feels crushed in the presence of, of, of his Lord. Depart from me, he says. I'm, a, I'm an unclean man. I'm a sinful man. Let's look at his presence. Let's see him. Behold him. And that'll do two things. Number one, it will convict. But it will comfort. 
It will do both. A sight of him will both convict us of our deepest sins and will comfort us in a God who saves, in a God who purifies, in a God who cleanses. But then the prayers that he prays for this purity, protection, and piety are just all personal. It's not just a communal lament. It's not just, Lord, we're all sinners, and I'm just a sinner among a whole bunch of sinners. Um, it's not cleanse us. It's, it's me. Me. I'm the sinner whom Jesus came to save. Cleanse me. Let, not, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall not be blameless. Let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be acceptable in your sight. He's personally engaged with his God in these prayers. It's born out of personal need. It's kind of easy to go amongst a group of people and just convince them of generalities. But when things begin to come to, come to full weight upon our own hearts and souls, then it's how these things have affected me. You run into the guy with the four spiritual laws that's trying to convince of you that, uh, that uh, well, everybody sinned. Surely, surely you agree with that, don't you? Oh, yeah, I agree with that. But when I see him, I'm crushed with the reality of my sin. Not just some general notion, all people everywhere have sinned. Of course, we know that's true. But our problem is we just don't see our own sins. We just don't see our own transgressions. But we do when we come into the presence of the living God. But it's not just that we see our sins and our transgressions and our need of our cleansing. But he also directs his prayer to him who is my rock and him who is my redeemer. This God is my God and he will be my guide even unto death. I have another application but I'm going to save it for some other time may God be pleased to bless his word let's go to him in prayer Father we are truly humbled in your sight and we pray for grace to ever live before you ever to realize that this whole question of the life of sin is is much broader than we oftentimes think but you are the one who purifies from all sin every sin and you can give us grace to look sin square in the eye and know that our sins will not crush us because you are the God who cleanses from all of our sins and all of our transgressions. And you are the God who shows us your favor and shows us your love and engages to be our protector, our defender, our helper, our strength, our guard, our guide. We're thankful for all that you are to us and we're thankful that we have personally experienced the good of your grace and of your love, of the provisions of the gospel. And for this, we are immensely grateful. We pray that your blessing would be upon your people and you would draw near to us as we remember our Lord Jesus crucified for our sins. As we come to the supper of remembrance, we'd ask in Jesus' name, amen.